Well, it's so good for Pam and me to be back home and be with our church family. We had a wonderful time of ministry and some vacation as well the last two weeks in Italy at a pastor's conference, but it's always uh, the best part of the trip, you know, when you come home. So we did get home uh, last night, a little jet laggy this morning perhaps, but uh, so glad to be able to study God's Word with you once again. It's probably true that most pastors preach from the New Testament more than they do the Old Testament. That has certainly been the case with me and my ministry through the years, and this is understandable to a degree. We are New Covenant believers. We are followers of Christ. We are part of the church, which is an entity not existing in the Old Testament. So it makes sense that we would want to know as much as possible about Christ as he is revealed in the four writings of the gospel. It makes sense that we would want to know as much as possible about the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church as it's revealed in Acts. And it makes sense that we would want to know as much as possible about what is written to Christians and how to live and to the church as is recorded in all the New Testament epistles. But we should not think that the Old Testament is unimportant or that it is not applicable to us. It is very important and it is very applicable. We do need to handle it correctly, of course, but nevertheless, think about it, we do need to study and we do need to read what makes up about two-thirds of the Bible. Therefore, I have taught through at least a few Old Testament books through the years and as well several psalms along with several stand-along passages from the Old Testament. And in that vein, today and next Sunday, I am once again taking us through some Old Testament passages, this time from the book of Hosea. You can join me there, the book of Hosea. It's easier to find Daniel. That's a bigger book. Find Daniel and then go to the next book. Perhaps that's helpful. Hosea is classified as one of the minor prophets. That's what the last 12 books of the Old Testament are called. But a clarification is certainly needed there. These 12 books are called minor only because of their size. They're still very important books. They convey important messages, but they're just not as long as prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But these 12 minor prophets, these 12 prophetic books deal with what was going on during the era of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian period, and even the centuries then after the captivity of God's people. Now, Hosea was not actually the first one of the minor prophets that was written, but it's placed first in order in the Bible because, likely, just because it's the longest of the twelve, but also possibly because it is the one that is the most theologically complete, we would say, in what it addresses. Now, the author is obviously a man named Hosea. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, as well as the prophet Micah. His ministry uh, lasted about 40 to 50 years up until about 710 uh, B.C. This past week, we were in some cities in Rome, touring some little towns here and there, and we were commonly in some towns where the walls were built 900 B.C. or 800 B.C., and as I'm walking around, I'm thinking about the passage I was studying for today, how that these people were living their lives while in elsewhere, uh, either Hosea hadn't even been born yet or some of those villages and towns, people were living there while Hosea was writing and prophesying. Nevertheless, his prophecies were primarily aimed at the ten or two, the ten tribes of what's called the northern kingdom, though there is some application as well at times to the southern kingdom. We probably should pause there and just make a comment or two of why the kingdom was divided like that. There were 12 tribes. Why were they divided into 10 and 2? Well, throughout Israel's 
history, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, throughout their history in the promised land, the Israelites constantly struggled with a lot of internal conflicts. There was a lot of uh, tribal uh, discord between the tribes. But eventually, once David became king, he united all 12 tribes. It was a union, though, that was very frail. And over time, eventually, 10 of the tribes, under the leadership of a man named Jeroboam, who rejected David's dynasty, they formed a kingdom of their own to the north, 10 tribes. Only Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty, and they were the southern kingdom, therefore. So the northern 10-tribe kingdom is called... Israel in Scripture, I mean, sometimes Israel refers to the whole unit, but now in these kinds of books, Israel is that northern kingdom of ten tribes. Sometimes it's even called Ephraim. And the southern two-tribe kingdom is called Judah. So from a human viewpoint, that division was the result of tribal discord and political unrest and warring. But from the divine viewpoint, the division was a judgment on the people for not keeping God's commands, judgment upon them specifically because they disobeyed the commands against idolatry. So back to Hosea. Hosea's ministry in writing primarily to the northern kingdom began at or just before the time of his marriage a marriage that took place when he was somewhere between 18 to 20 years old, likely. And as we know, it's a famous marriage. God commanded him to marry a woman named Gomer. Now, the unique thing about this marriage was not her name Gomer, though that is unique to our ears, of course. The unique thing about the marriage is that Hosea was told ahead of time by the Lord, that his wife, Gomer, was going to be unfaithful to him. Now, this was a real marriage. It was not just a metaphorical marriage, as some try to say. It was a real marriage, a real man, a real woman, Hosea and Gomer. And God had a purpose for it. The purpose of Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea was that it would serve as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, Israel's defection from God. The people had become influenced by the pagan nations around them, which means they had become influenced by the Baal worship that was around them. And along with uh, getting involved in this pagan worship, they were committing all manner of other sins as well, and therefore they had come to a place of great moral and spiritual decline. So as the people became increasingly idolatrous, God's judgment eventually fell on them, And that judgment came about through the nation experiencing military defeats at the hand of those pagan nations, in particular Assyria. When we're talking about the northern kingdom, Assyria defeated them, and that resulted in the people then being exiled. So Gomer's unfaithfulness pictured all of that. And we could say that Hosea's continued faithfulness to and love for his wife pictures God's patient love and faithfulness to his people. So overall, we can find two primary theological themes in the book of Hosea. We certainly find God's unique sovereignty on display in this book, but we also do find God's faithful love. Now, with that brief introductory information in place, let's parachute now into chapter 5, Hosea chapter 5. In this chapter we find a sobering reality that even though people tend to think that if they just ignore or forget God, then God will forget them, the fact is God does not forget anyone or anything because God knows all things. Or in a word, we say God is omniscient, omniscient. Now, the first three verses set up our look today at God's perfect omniscience, his perfect knowledge. Let's just set that up. Verse 1 says, Hear this, O priest, 
Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. So their attention is demanded here through the use of these three imperatives. Hear, give heed, listen. And the attention that God demands is from three groups of people. It says the priest, the priest in the nation of Israel, the people themselves, captured in that phrase, the house of Israel, and the king. In other words, the judgment of God was coming upon all of them because the sin of idolatry had been like a disease, a gangrenous disease that had infected everyone regardless of their position. It had infected high and lowly alike. Verse 1 continues, For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. Just so you'll know, geographically, Mizpah is in the east and Mount Tabor in the west. The main thing you need to know is they were places where the people were enticed to worship idols. But they were also places known for their good hunting. So there's some imagery being used here in the verse. The point is that just like a snare and a net were items used to trap an animal, to trap prey in hunting, the people were like that. The people were being trapped into idolatry. And sadly, instead of protecting the people, the leaders were the very ones who were like the hunters, trying to entice the people into idolatry, enticing them into sin to the point that then the people were no longer really following the Lord. Now, in verse 2, all those involved in idolatry are just called revolters, meaning rebels. Verse 2, the revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. The label revolters is just a way to describe the nation's rebellion against God's word. The people were rebelling. They were going their own way. They were living out the influence of the pagan people around them. And their depravity is the way one translation puts it. I think it's really better translated slaughter. Their slaughter was deep. Their slaughter was profound. In other words, the people have been led into such a state of depravity, of sin, that it was like they were being spiritually slaughtered. God therefore says he would not let these revolters get away with it. He would chastise them. He would discipline those responsible. And then in verse 3, we get to really what is the theme of our time together today. We get this reference to God's omniscience. He says in verse 3, I know Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled yourself. You see how the name Ephraim and Israel are being used back and forth synonymously to talk about that same northern kingdom of ten tribes. Now, Ephraim was the name of one of those ten tribes in the north, but it's sometimes used in the Bible to represent the entire northern kingdom of Israel. You could call it either one, Israel or Ephraim, and there are reasons for Ephraim having become a synonym for Israel. First of all, it was the tribe located on the southernmost part of the northern kingdom. That means the southern kingdom, Judah, came up and bordered the northern kingdom at the tribe Ephraim. So the people in the south, the people in the southern kingdom, Judah, when they would think of the northern kingdom and and look that way, so to speak, they would view that entire northern nation through the grid of their immediate neighbor. Ephraim, one of the ten tribes. Second reason is just the fact that the tribe of Ephraim was the leader, so to speak, in the sin of idolatry and in the sin of immorality. The center of worship for corrupting all Israel. An altar called the Bethel altar was in Ephraim. So that tribe's sin was a suitable synonym for the entire northern kingdom's abandonment of the knowledge and the ways of God. But though Israel was living as if they had forgotten God, God had not forgotten her. What he's reminding her of in verse 3 is this, I, I know all about you, Ephraim. Nothing about you, Israel, is hidden from me. 
This is a bottom line reality. All things are open and clear to God. Now, people may hope to to hide their faults, to hide their defilement from others. People even seek to lie to themselves and deceive themselves about their spiritual state. But the Lord knows the fact and knows the extent of every person's sin, of every nation's sin. Nothing is hidden from him. Well, with that introduction then, our passage goes on to give us some specifics about what God knows. Now, obviously, he knows more than what this chapter talks about. But we're going to find some categories of God's knowledge here. Keep this in mind that obviously this passage was written directly to God's chosen people, the Israelites, in the days of Hosea. So what we find here is to be understood, first of all, through that grid. First of all, God's knowledge of Israel, God's knowledge of Israel's sin. But there are certainly some timeless principles here concerning all that God knows about any people, about any nation who rebel against him. So what we're going to find expressed are seven categories of God's knowledge related to Israel's spiritual decline. But I'll go ahead and word these seven categories in a timeless form. And as we'll see, the seven certainly overlap with one another. Just fine nuances of differences and that's it. Here's number one. He, meaning God, he is aware of deeds. Deeds. Verse 4, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Now, someone's deeds, and in the broadest sense, it means their words, their words and deeds, they're, they're important because the words and the deeds of any person are the product of the state of their heart. And the sobering fact about deeds is that once deeds are committed with regularity, they become habitual. And that was the case with Israel. Their ungodly habits were like this evil power that had its way over the nation, holding them in bondage, not permitting them to turn to the Lord. In fact, look how Hosea puts it. He writes that their spiritual harlotry was like a spirit that settled upon them. And they had become so spiritually darkened and in such spiritual bondage due to their habitual deeds that they no longer then even knew Yahweh. Not really. So don't miss the intended contrast between what this verse says and what the previous verse 3 said. God says He knew His people, but His people did not know Him. And that was evidenced in their deeds, deeds that were clearly seen by the Lord, whether they admitted it or recognized it or not. God is aware of deeds. Number two, he is aware of pride. He is aware of pride. Verse five, moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. Now, the Israelites, steeped in idolatry, the sin of idolatry, had grown then prideful against God, or we could say arrogant against God. And this pride was not just a problem in the northern kingdom. Notice how Judah is mentioned quickly here. Hosea knew that God knew that Judah was just as arrogant as the northern kingdom, that both were living out what we know to be true about pride, that pride goes before a fall. Well, both Israel and Judah were headed for that, for a fall, because both were prideful in their belief that they could live any way they wanted to, they could worship any way they wanted to. God saw that. He saw their pride. And as Proverbs 6 says, pride, or as Proverbs 6 puts it, haughty eyes, meaning pride, is one of the seven sins that are a special abomination to the Lord. God is always aware of even the smallest nuances of pride, and he hates even the smallest nuances of pride. He is aware of pride. Number three, 
he is aware of insincerity. Insincerity, verse 6. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord. Now, that sounds good at first read, but here's the point. After warnings of God's judgment and after realizing the nations around them were actually a, a legitimate threat to their safety, they began, as they thought through things, to fear their circumstances. And driven by that fear, they made some feeble efforts at what looked like seeking the Lord. They appeared to be coming to sacrifice to the Lord their animals from their flocks and their herds. The problem is God knew the true condition of their hearts and that this was not a sincere seeking after Him at all. It was just a sort of seeking, while at the same time they were actually running away from God. And God was not fooled by it. Obviously, people do the same thing today. It may take a different form, but it, people are the same today when it comes to their definition of spirituality and religion and so forth. Many seek religious experiences through some certain style of worship or through certain lighting or certain music or religious rituals. They seek some sort of religious experience and community activity or art and so on. And they'll protest. They'll say, we're, we're spiritually minded people. We're seeking God in our own way. Look how religious we are. But God was not fooled by that in Hosea's day, and he's not fooled by it today. He knows when people are genuinely seeking him and when they are not. So even though the phrase flocks and herds is a reference to sacrifice and religious ritual, Here's what God says about that sort of thing. Here's a clear statement of his opinion about it when it's not sincere. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, religious activity. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or divination. In other words, without some sincerity, mere outward activity and outward sacrifice doesn't fool God. Therefore, the people found only this as a result of their insincere seeking. Verse 6 goes on, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. You see, God demands truth. He demands sincerity in the heart. Therefore, he tells them in advance what his response is always going to be to insincere seeking, he won't be found. On the personal level, their so-called seeking will never be satisfying. And again, regardless of how much religious people protest and say they're doing the right things or that their religious experience was really moving and genuine, God says that seeking him while nurturing sin is worthless. It has nothing to do with him, really. He's just not in that. And if he's not in it, it's not true worship. Is this a timeless dilemma? Sure it is. Much of the so-called religious seeking today is producing nothing but emptiness in people's lives, dissatisfaction, disillusionment. Some are saying that the heart of the gospel is not even an objective message. It's just an emotional experience that they're trying to find. And add to the fact that today the driving concern that we hear so much of is this driving search for personal identity and a search for the so-called authentic self rather than genuine worship of a living personal God, rather than seeking genuinely after truth and the ways of God. And all of that can be carried out while having nothing to do with God, nothing to do with truth. Unless somebody sincerely seeks God as he has revealed himself, then it is insincere searching and seeking, and God's aware of it. Number four, he is aware of unfaithfulness. I told you that all these kind of overlap, and they do. But number four, he is aware of unfaithfulness. Verse seven, they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. 
Now, to deal treacherously is the way one translation puts it here. I think it's better translated to act unfaithfully. That's what it means. To deal treacherously is to live unfaithfully like the behavior of an unfaithful spouse. So the sin of the people, their own personal sin was bad enough, individuals sinning against God, but to make it worse, they were just like an unfaithful spouse who gets pregnant outside of marriage. The people were birthing and rearing another generation according to their sinful ways, a generation who didn't fear the Lord. And therefore, the only right action on God's part for this degree of unfaithfulness was judgment, which is what the rest of verse 7 refers to. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. The reference to the new moon is referring to the rituals, the religious rituals, the festivals, the sacrifices. Those prescribed rituals were being desecrated by their unfaithfulness. And therefore, they don't find what they're looking for. God's protection, God's help, God's blessing is not there. So what they thought would bring them happiness would in fact end up bringing them ruin and judgment. So Hosea writes in verse 8, therefore they need to be warned. Warned to look out, verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beth-Avon. Behind you, Benjamin. Now, trumpet in those days was used for for sound warning. So the point is they needed to take heed. At long last, the predicted judgment of God was going to come, and the judgment was even going to come through invasion by their enemies around them. And notice that the danger is going to threaten Benjamin as well in the south. This tribe was part of the southern kingdom the kingdom of Judah. Benjamin was one of the two tribes there. But interesting, Benjamin was located on the north side of Judah. So just like I said, Ephraim was on the south side of the northern kingdom. Benjamin was on the north side of the southern kingdom. And so Benjamin came right up against the border with Ephraim. And therefore, that tribe in the south was especially prone to being influenced by Ephraim's sin. So they're warned as well. Look out. Now, Gibeah and Ramah were actually cities in Benjamin. Beth-Avon is probably another reference to that altar, Bethel, which was in Ephraim at the south end of the northern kingdom. In any case, the point is that as the enemy attacked the northern kingdom, the southern tribes were going to be in danger as well. In verse 9, the consequence of all this unfaithfulness continues. Verse 9, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I declare what is sure. He's saying there was no hope for a reprieve if this is how they were going to live. If they were unrepentant concerning their unfaithfulness, regardless of what they may say about their efforts and their religious activities and their seeking and their experiences, it didn't matter. Judgment was coming because God is aware of all unfaithfulness. Number five, he is aware of redefinitions. He is aware of redefinitions. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Now this verse has interesting language, but it's so applicable to today. It's a statement about the sin of the leaders primarily but particularly directed toward Judah now. A few things are thrown in about Judah as well. Here's the point. Property lines in that day were usually indicated by stone markers or landmarks, which meant they could easily be moved at night when nobody was looking. So to move a boundary was equivalent to stealing property from a neighbor. Judah's princes... Leaders, in other words, were not shifting stones and physical lines. They were shifting spiritual lines. Spiritual lines and definitions defined by God. So this is a metaphor to say that what they were guilty of was changing the definitions of right and wrong, changing the definitions of what is true and false, What a picture of our culture today, including our own government. 
And it's even true of many religious leaders today. Verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. In other words, these human definitions. So here the prophet turns his attention back to his main audience, the north, Ephraim, and speaks of judgment upon her as an accomplished fact, all because of Israel's desire to go by man's definitions, man's commands, rather than what God says. Hosea then uses interesting similes here to describe the judgment. The simile, you know, is a comparison when it uses the word like or as. Verse 12, therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. So the picture presents again judgment already present. The people were already being eaten by internal problems as well as by external threats and troubles as if moths and decay had set in. You ever lost some garments due to moths? That's so frustrating. I've lost a couple of suits that way. Just a little hole or two ruins the whole thing. That's the way it was for the people. They were experiencing all these troubles as if being eaten slowly by rottenness and decay or by moths. So both kingdoms are presented as falling apart here, unable to maintain themselves any longer due to their propensity to redefine what is right and wrong. That doesn't get by God. When people do that, he is aware of all redefinitions. Number six, he is aware of hypocrisy. In a sense, everything I'm talking about today is a form of hypocrisy, but now it's even more clear. Number six, he is aware of hypocrisy. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, in other words, they figured out that they were in dire straits, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. This is ultimately an example of hypocrisy because here they were claiming to be God's unique special people, claiming to be dependent on the Lord, claiming to trust him, claiming to worship him, sacrificing animals, participating in the feast. And yet, when they really needed something, both kingdoms ultimately turned to man for help. Specifically, they foolishly turned to the king of Assyria, an enemy who'd cared nothing about them. In fact, the enemy that God was going to end up using to defeat Israel and carry the people away into captivity. So again, the point is the hypocrisy on their part, saying on one hand, they're followers of the Lord and they belong to him. And on the other hand, uh, we would put it this way, hedging their bets, as it were playing both sides of it, turning to other sources besides the Lord for help. It's the hypocrisy of voicing confidence in God in their worship while practically they depended on the godless culture around them for guidance and for help. And that is hypocrisy that God always sees. People do that today. They come to church perhaps singing songs about their trust in God or Maybe they give lip service to the reality of God or lip service to the Bible, even lip service about their belief in the sufficiency of the Scripture. And then they go out and act exactly like pagans as they try to use any device at their disposal to get what they want out of life. Their real trust ends up being in the government or in science, or medicine, or humanistic psychology, or politics, or trust in social reform, or education. God sends the misery of the metaphorical moth and rottenness and decay to frustrate all attempts to live life without Him and to live life without truth. If the moth or rottenness don't do it, God's able to send the lion, verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. Neither Assyria nor any other human agency would be able to ultimately help God's people. 
The world has never been able to help God's people. Instead, in response to abandoning the Lord's help, he himself says, I'll tear you, rend you, like an overpowering and insatiable lion. And none would be able to withstand him or or deliver from his hand. This is a point about God's justice. He sees all hypocrisy, and his justice is definite. You know, we love to speak about God's irresistible grace. And good, for good reason, we like to speak about his irresistible grace. But his judgment and justice are irresistible as well. Lastly, number seven, he's aware of deeds, pride, insincerity, unfaithfulness, redefinitions, hypocrisy. Those are all quite negative. The seven has a bit of a positive spin on it. Number seven, he is aware of repentance. He is aware of repentance. Now, we've already noted that one aspect of God's chastisement is this idea of withdrawal. And here we find it again. He says, I will go away and return to my place. God turns his face away, as it were, takes his hands off, as it were. But the question is, is that, is that it? I mean, is that the final word? What about those who do recognize all of this, who do come to repent of their wicked deeds? They know they have wicked deeds. They know their pride and their insincerity and their propensity to redefine things, their unfaithfulness, their hypocrisy. Is there no word of comfort or hope for stricken people who see their error? And want to be reconciled to the Lord? The answer is yes. The answer in verse 15 is one of assurance here. Verse 15 says, until, that's a great word, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. You see, there's always a remnant of genuine sheep There's always a remnant of those who understand their sinfulness and who come to seek him with their whole heart the best they can. Insincerity. And God knows that, just like he knows all the rest. He knows who they are, and he knows that they will acknowledge their guilt. He knows that they will seek his face. Throughout history, there have been those who take joy in the word until. But let me ask you something. Since I said at the beginning, this is all written, first of all, directly to Israel. Has it ever really happened what is said there in verse 15? Has the until happened that they really, as a nation, have come to acknowledge their guilt and seek God's face? As a nation? Well, we could say there's been small examples individuals, but nothing yet on a national scale, which is how this is written. We can look at history and confirm that the Assyrian captivity that did happen, as well as the Babylonian captivity for the southern kingdom, they were followed by partial returns of the people. But history presents us with very little of such a change of heart amongst the nation. Even when Christ came the first time at his incarnation, his own people rejected him. The bulk of the Jews did not receive him, did not want him as their king. So what we have here is a touch of important prophecy as well. Hosea is even looking to the far distant future for Israel. He sees beyond the Assyrian captivity for Ephraim beyond the Babylonian captivity for Judah, beyond the final worldwide dispersion of the whole nation, which is what we're living with today when it comes to Israel, to the time when the relationship between God and his chosen people is going to be made different and right. After being rejected by Israel, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus, their king, 
returned to his place of glory in heaven. He departed. And there at the right hand of majesty and power on high, Christ, the true son of David in the line of David, the rightful king of Israel, remains until a still future time when he will come to earth again. And Scripture teaches us as that moment finally approaches, Israel as a nation in penitence will acknowledge their sin. In that hour, the nation of Israel, as it exists on earth at that time, will with all earnestness seek the Lord. Do you know Scripture tells us that's going to happen? It's in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read a few verses from Romans chapter 11. Follow along with me, if you will. Romans 11. Romans 9, 10, 11 are incredible chapters of prophecy about the nation of Israel. There are commentators who, because of their theological system, don't know what to do with these three chapters. And it's amazing. You read them as they study through chapters 1 through 8. They have all this incredible uh, hermeneutical help and, and application and understanding of the text. They get to chapters 9, 10, 11. It's almost like a different author. They just sort of check out. They don't know what to do with it. Chapter 12 comes. They get back engaged, and they begin to teach. If you apply hermeneutics, just keep going. Romans 9, 10, 11, it's not that hard. Paul, a Jew, is writing about his own people. And look what he says here, starting verse 7, Romans 11. What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now, that was Paul's day. So it's down to this very day still today, a stupor, a spirit of stupor, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear. Romans 11, verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And fall means to to completely be rejected by God and there's just no hope for them as a nation. May it never be. But by their transgression, in other words, this time of not hearing and not seeing, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The gospel has gone out to all the earth to make them, Israel, jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be, still be, future? Verse 25, Romans 11. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when God has finally saved all of those who will be part of his church. Verse 26, and so then all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, that's Jesus, He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We believe this happens, will happen because Scripture says it will be happened. We believe it's important for it to happen because God made a covenant for it to happen. As Paul writes about all this, the future of his own people, he's so caught up in amazement. Look how he ends the chapter. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. His plan is amazing. So yes, for some time now, God has turned away from Israel in that sense. Don't get me wrong. Individual Jews keep coming to Christ, have been, are, and will continue. Those who are his elect sheep. And then when they do, you know what they're called then? Christians. Members of the body of Christ in which there is no Jew or Gentile. But even though the nation as a whole is still in rebellion against the truth and suffering God's abandonment, in that future day, that is going to change. And we have been seeing that as well in our study on Wednesday nights with the book of Revelation, that during the future great tribulation leading up to the Lord's return, as the coming of the Lord draws very near, many Israelites, the nation as it exists at that time, most are going to come to finally acknowledge Christ as king. So when Hosea wrote this, God's words to that nation at that time, it was going to happen partially at times in small ways. 
There's a note of prophecy even about the future. Well, all this was just about God's omniscience, and this is just one passage. There's so many more that we don't have time to read, but I want to read just a few other verses about God's omniscience. Here's about a hundred, okay? Eight, I think there is. Joshua 22, verse 22. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. Psalm 94, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. Psalm 138, verse 6. The haughty, the prideful, he knows from afar. He can see them coming from a long way off. Isaiah 29, verse 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees us or who knows us? The understood answer is, God does. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 20. The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, so-called wise. They are useless. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. 2 Peter 2.9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows all that. One more, it's back in the Old Testament. Maybe it's just a comforting way to end that list. Nahum 1 verse 7, he knows those who take refuge in him. You see, the bottom line is God knows all things, which means he knows all things related to each of us here today. And we're conflicted over that reality for good reason. I mean, on one hand, we, we're people. We, we want to be known and understood by others and known by God. But on the other hand, we don't want to be known too well by other people here. We live our lives with our guards up at some level. I mean, everyone's a bit anxious, at least a little bit, about what might happen if his or her true self were known. We fear exposure. We know we have much to hide. And so we seek to do that. We seek to hide it from others. We seek to sometimes even deceive ourselves. But we cannot hide from God. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But let me give you some good news. That's okay. It's okay that he knows everything if we've come to Christ. If we have humbly come to the Lord, in true acknowledgement of our sinfulness, our sinful deeds, our pride, our insincerity, our unfaithfulness, our redefinitions, our hypocrisy. If we have come to Christ humbly acknowledging that and putting our confidence and trust in Him now, trusting in Christ's perfect life that He lived and trusting in His death and atonement for sin and His resurrection from the dead and not trusting in ourselves when we do that, The one who knows us better than we know ourselves cleanses us from everything that we ought to hide from him. Cleanses us of our sin. And he goes beyond that. You know what he does? He didn't just wipe us clean. He gives us the robes of his own righteousness to clothe us. So though we may have tried to hide from God, I'm just saying in Christ we don't have to. It's a joy to know we can stand confidently before him. And we have no reason to fear exposure because we're more sinful than we actually think we are, and he knows it. He knows us as we truly are, and yet we are completely and eternally accepted by him. Because of that, we can cry out out the very words of Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, 
For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And yes, we who are in Christ, we still have moments. We don't live as if that's who we are. We still have moments of being tempted by the world and giving in even to the temptations of the flesh. And in those times, we, we feel like one of those verses in Hosea that just said that the Lord turns away. We feel like he hides his face from us. But if you're in Christ, just know that the times of the Lord's loving discipline are good times. They bring us to admit our sin. They bring us to those points where we need to end our momentary love affair with worldliness. The fact is, the Lord actually will never abandon us. So how wonderful, how freeing, repenting of sin and trusting in the Lord really is. And that is what people ultimately need. Certainly what our nation needs. Let me be clear, we are not God's chosen nation. That was and still is Israel. But the principles still apply to our nation today. Our nation and its leaders are guilty of abandoning God and ignoring His Word. Our nation deserves God's judgment. We tend to dread the idea of that because we don't want to lose our lifestyles and possessions and so forth and maybe our lives, but really, if the end result is purifying, with God's people getting more serious about their walk with Christ and unbelievers coming to Christ for salvation, then why should we dread it? God knows what He's doing. And if judgment and persecution will bring about all that, then it ends up being just what we need. We can trust Him for whatever He does. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this glimpse into what was going on so many years ago in the nation of Israel and Judah as well, the whole nation of Israel. Thank You for reminding us that You are an omniscient God, but You're also a very patient and loving God and a God who loves repentance. And a God who responds to repentance with forgiveness. And that is our greatest need. So Lord, help us to live each day with the acknowledgement that you are an omniscient God and that we ought to live our lives in reverence of you. But Lord, help us to rejoice over the fact that you are a saving God and that in Christ we have nothing to fear. I do pray for anyone here who is still trying to hide in some way. May you bring them to that point of humility to say, Lord, I need to be forgiven. Please cleanse me of my sin and make me one of your own. Do that work in their hearts. In Christ's name, amen.